another one. We have another episode, another guest, another guest that we've been waiting to have on for a while because you guys already know this person through some of his social media posts that he's helped us with. He's been an avid supporter of this podcast for a long time. He's a good friend of both of me and Jamie. And uh, we thought, you know, what better way to give back than to just simply exploit him for more content by having him on the podcast. <laughs> Let me welcome our good friend, Michael Cumming. What's up, dude? Hi, everyone. I, I, I'm doing good. See, if you think about it, the trick is kind of on you. Because if I'm best known as like a social media personality, the best way to offset the stigma associated with that is to come on here and look smart and look like an ally and all that stuff and not just some vain PR piece of shit. I knew you'd be a good guest for this episode for a few reasons that like, I want to get to later. But uh, before we even talk about the movie, I want to ask you about your disabled experience. What, what can you consider, if anything, to be your experience with disability? Well, you know, the funny thing is, and I'm not sure if like someone leaked this to you guys or <laughs> if I leaked it to you. Uh... Are you in a wheelchair? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no, but but uh, I, I, I'm not sure if if when I was like intoxicated or something that y- you already got wind of this. But um, ev- like all of my mother's siblings so i forget how many brothers and sisters she actually has uh but like i have at least three or four siblings who are deaf so yeah that that my experience with hearing loss is is a lot more intimate also uh my best friend actually lost his hearing uh or at least has extremely extremely damaged hearing uh, as a result of kind of like the main character in the movie, which don't worry, we're going to get there, from playing in bands. And uh, he has to wear hearing aids. He has a ton of difficulty in social situations because he feels uncomfortable screaming in people's faces because he assumes people can't hear him. Yeah, I mean, w- within the context of this movie, I have a ton of experience, even before meeting you guys, uh, in, in regards to uh, disability. So, well, it, well, specifically hearing disability. Nobody ever told me, which is kind of wild, especially because we've been talking about watching this movie for a decent amount of time and it still never came up. But I just want to backtrack for a second because when yeah, yeah, you yeah, started yeah. breaking down, your, when you're like, well, so everyone on my mom's side... Your buildup, I I got to be honest, I had visions of like a train of wheelies or like a bus full of quadriplegics. I thought you were going to say like all your great aunts, like on your mom's mom's side had like polio or something <laughs> crazy. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so like, again, I get, the, I kind of feel like a bad person for not knowing the specific numbers, but I have... Two hearing siblings on my mom's side. So my mother and then one of my uncles. 
And I'm pretty sure that there's the the remaining three, possibly four, are completely deaf. So do you know how to sign, Michael, or have any experience in that realm? I have terrible ability to sign. My sister, for some reason, uh, maybe she's a better person than me or I have more <laughs> patience. I don't know. But her sign language is quite good. And this is like, might, this might come across as like some sort of like sob story or something. But my grandfather, kind of a piece of shit. And he actually never learned to speak sign language despite having multiple deaf children. What? Oh my goodness. And my uh, grandmother, so my mother's mother died when she was like 11 or 10. And so my mother, who was a, the old, the eldest sibling, basically, and, and the only one who spoke sign language, basically had to raise deaf children. Oh, my goodness. And they, they were deaf for like a majority of their life? They were deaf from birth. So your grandfather, he, took, he drew a line in the sand. And I was like, I'm not going to learn. I don't know if ironic is the right word for it, but he's the only, I guess you could say, celebrity in my entire family tree. <laughs> Imagine it's like The Rock. That would be so good to find out on this podcast that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is actually like the biggest asshole, like anti-deaf people. <laughs> that would be so good. That would be the the very definition of burying the lead. It's not it's not quite as exciting as that, but I mean, as far as Canadian uh, celebrities go, it is of moderate interest. So he was the goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs farm team. Are you going to name drop, or are we just going to have to guess? Um, his name was Jack Gibson. What year? What years would he have been active? Yeah, I got to be honest. I don't know that name. But that's a pretty impressive resume already. So did he just blame it on ice hockey? He's like, I'm too busy to learn sign language. I got to learn how to stop the puck. And just, like, what, do you just put whiteboards all over the house? Uh, he actually invented a golf board game. <laughs> like, and it was actually like a pretty fucking fun game. So it's just like, again, like, I mean, this guy was like a fucking asshole. He didn't learn sign language. So you speak to his children, but he was an outstanding athlete. And in addition to being an athlete, invented a board game, which I've played myself. And it's pretty frigging fun. It's blowing my mind a bit that you have so much. I thought you just give like a hilarious non answer about your disability experience. But you like legit have pretty significant experience with deafness which is obviously perfect for this movie still holding out to talk about it but yeah that's that's amazing i i remember a couple uh conversations with you at the ottawa jailhouse bar about your uh various bone fractures from your like uh pugilism career <laughs> yes and so like you've experienced some temporary disability in that vein and now i would say you have like a like a, a statistically high percentage of disabled friends in your social circle. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, like Michael's got all kinds of material, relevant material to qualify him uh, as a guest on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'd like, to, I'd like to think so. I also, uh, I, I did read a book about um, disability in modern art, which I found was very fascinating. 
Yeah, I think we've had a couple conversations about that book over the years as well. What's the, the idea? That if you're disabled, you can make better art? No, it's basically how you can trace society's like acceptance or understanding of what it means to be disabled or to be different or to be other or whatever, whatever, through the kind of evolution of art. So whether it's like, you know, that uh, Todd Browning's Freaks from like 1924 or whatever, up until, uh, I forget the artist's name, but there's a female artist who's like, like severely physically disabled. And there's this huge statue of her in like Trafalgar Square. And it's her like giving birth. And so it's basically like incredibly significant that a immediately recognizable physically disabled woman is giving birth in a giant statue in a super central place in uh, a Western country. So little details like that. Obviously, it's it's an incredibly like complex book and there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, warrants probably like an entire podcast in and of itself. But yeah, so that's it. I got to say, I've never thought about this before now, but now all I can think of is how cool, I hope this comes off in the right way because I don't want to be offensive, but how cool it would be to see a blind person draw a self-portrait. Like I'm I'm trying to, I want that to seem sincere because I realize (laughs) how easily that could seem like I'm mocking someone, but I feel like that would be really cool. You know know what? I would put a lot of money on my confidence that a trained artist would be able to draw what they think a blind person would draw versus uh, like an amateur artist, an untrained artist, whatever, whatever, would say like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're going to miss this. I'm pretty sure they're going to miss that. Like, I'm not a great visual artist in terms of like working with my hands, yeah. you know, like uh, when it comes to like uh, filmmaking, motion graphics, things like that. But like when it comes to using my hands, I could draw at an above average level for sure like i'm not gonna fucking lie to you and say like oh i suck at drawing <laughs> no that's not true at all like i mean i'm an okay drawer but i'm not great but there's little things like for, for example i guarantee you they would fuck up the nose like if they've never seen a nose before exactly yeah like how do you describe what a nose is Here, here's a secret i'm gonna give you on a nose this i'm gonna save you 750 dollars on uh, a visual art, like 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 drawing lessons. There's no hard lines in a nose. It's all shading. Oh, wow. You put you put one hard line in a nose. It's a cartoon, and it doesn't look realistic at all, and it looks stupid. And I think that's what that's the mistake that a blind person will make. That's a cocaine jerk waiting to happen, and I can't do that. <laughs> I I could be wrong, but like if I was gonna if someone had a if someone had a gun to my head and they're like, how's this blind motherfucker going to fuck up this painting? I'd be like, who knows? <laughs> I swear to God, it's a nose. I don't know. Is that how you think you'd talk if you had a gun to your head? I'd like to think that I'd be so cool about it, but I actually think I would just start crying. I mean, the best example I could give you to refute that mindset, the alleyway shootout scene in Collateral. 
If if Tom if Tom Cruise walked up to those guys <laughs> acting like a hard ass, they would have fucking drawn on him and blew his ass away. But instead, he looked like the little white Dorcas, and so they didn't feel threatened at all. And so they're like, "I'm gonna steal this bitch ass white guy loser's money too." And that's what you need to do. So if someone had a gun to my head, I would be like, "Oh no, bitch!" And then when they turn to their friend, they'd be like, this guy's such a pussy, then it's on. And they're on the ground. So it's a strategy. Exactly. Go in yeah. like a sh- go in like a sheep, come out like a lion. Tony, to, to get back to your initial inquiry about uh, whether a blind person could draw a relevant self-portrait, I remember uh, seeing a Discovery Channel special several years ago. I think it coincided with the release of an X-Men film. Which, like, you know, you could ostensibly argue is an allegory for disabled experience on some level. Oh, yeah, we're going to watch it. Yeah, we have to watch it, unfortunately, even though I do not like Brian Singer. In the special, though, it was, like, about, like, people with physical anomalies that uh, are, like, meta Like, they argue that they're scientifically metahuman or something. Like, there was one guy who was a long-distance runner who could willfully change mm. his internal body temperature just by thinking about it. Right. And then there was this one blind guy who could actually, like, leverage um, his mastery of, like, the Doppler effect, I think it is, to, like, like walk the circumference of a, of a large building uh, and, like, do... Like, I guess there's some sort of clicking noise that the blind people can do to t- sort of survey their surroundings. Like, <laughs> clicking noise that blind people can do? I, I don't know. I Like, I don't know any blind people, and I'm being super offensive, and I apologize. <laughs> I'm not qualified at all to be talking about this, but and yet we're here. Your eyes stop working, and you develop echolocation. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's what he did. He used echolocation to reproduce, like... Like he actually made a clicking noise himself. Pardon? He made a clicking noise himself. That's so cool. I guess so. I, I it sort of it sort of uh, uh, didn't really flesh out his methodology here, but the point was that he could make uh, recreations of real buildings by by doing this. Like, and that that's kind of cool, I suppose. Yeah, that's. I mean, they do say right, like when you lose one ability you've gained another not sure what i'm gonna gain i'm excited to see how you sort of wrap <laughs> like you know direct all this toward the sound of metal <laughs> oh you're just gonna leave that up to me <laughs> oh, thanks, dude. I, I i feel like i i don't have enough imagination to draw that parallel well they do say when you lose something you gain something else oh dear <laughs> but we just watched a movie about a man who lost something and in turn by the end of the movie realized he gained something much more profound than echolocation <laughs> i also wanted to on michael's point about the the uh, disability art book and the statue of the woman giving birth. Yes. Like, it's funny to me that it can seem so subversive or challenging to people's, like, concept of disability that combining it with procreation is so, like, artistically impactful. Because typically you do not associate the disabled with procreation. Yeah. The line stops here. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts as a able-bodied person, Michael, about why the overall consensus 
seems to be that all maternity wards are at the top of a flight of stairs. All maternity wards are at the top of a flight of stairs. James is saying, like, based on that, that how profound that statue is of a disabled person basically being able to give birth. Yeah. It, it speaks to society's strange aversion to, well, not an aversion, but like this sort of presumption that disabled people will not have kids. Like my first question would be, is there any statistical evidence of this being true? A little off topic here. Yeah. All right. <laughs> give, me, give us the overall take of what this movie was. I mean, I guess on a personal level, the thing that definitely spoke to me a lot more than actually having, you know, blood relatives who are deaf is having a best friend who has more or less gone through exactly what the main character Riz Ahmed playing Ruben Stone, which seems like the heel in WWE. Ruben Stone coming out of nowhere. <laughs> what do we, he's hitting him with a sandwich. This is crazy. <laughs> and throws Stone and then throws Stone Cold a Bud Light and he just mashes like a fucking Ruben <laughs> down. His, anyways, okay. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, my, probably my closest friend in the world. Uh, grew up in uh, hardcore bands and punk bands, things like that. And uh, this was before you know people had these high tech you know, ear monitors, earplugs, whatever, whatever. And so they would just be in a tiny garage. And I mean, like, drums are loud as fuck. And even if you're just like a 16-year-old kid with a little amp, I don't know the specific decibel levels of a drum, but I mean, like, it's more than enough to do permanent damage to your hearing. So, yeah, like, fast forward, not, not that far. Like, he was experiencing this in his mid-20s. So, yeah, I mean, this guy's not 40 years old. Like, I mean, he was, a you know, a relatively young adult. And I mean, at this point, like he's wearing hearing aids all the time or else he can't go out in public. And even with the hearing aids, he has significant trouble just with the most basic interactions with people, whether it's his close friends who know him, who you would assume would have some degree of comfort in the way that he speaks and so it wouldn't be that much of an issue as opposed to a stranger so yeah that's my personal experience with someone being rendered deaf by their lifestyle michael your your friend so you knew him very well both before and after uh his hearing impairment correct yes so did he how how did he cope like um it was and i guess maybe this is where there's a real separation between being genetically deaf and I'm not sure if that's an appropriate term or if that's the scientific term and then someone being sort of deaf as a result of their lifestyle. But for him, like it took like quite literally years, like probably over a decade for it to happen. And so initially it was just, Oh, I'm having a bit of a harder time hearing you especially with him, like he has like really, really, really crippling social anxiety, but like, you know, like having crippling social anxiety and not being able to hear the people 
that you're trying hard to interact with as you're having a total fucking anxiety attack, um, you know, you assume that it's your fault. Yeah, it's like compounding communication issues. I would imagine it would be awful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. That like it's yeah, it's like it's a problem on problem on problem on problem on problem. It's also it's got to be such a hard decision to be faced with where you're like the thing that I love doing is also the thing that's like causing this. So you you basically have to make a choice like do I want to keep my hearing or do I want to keep playing music? Yes. At, at least from an outside perspective, that's one of the most difficult things for me and I can't even imagine if it feels like this for me what it must feel like for him. 2 or 3 weeks ago, I actually designed a custom guitar pedal for him because he's still in the face of all this so passionate about playing guitar. And I mean, he's incredible at guitar. I, I've spent probably 20 years playing guitar and like I suck. Like I fucking suck balls, you know, <laughs> like I've, I've written like four albums uh, and like I think I suck alongside him i'm not i'm not steve i you know i'm i'm not uh john williams uh the classical guitarist not the star wars guy um (laughs) (laughs) important important distinction but like yeah like he's unbelievable like he's he's a like really 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 good guitarist and so i mean like yeah like to, to 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 not only be losing something that just is a practical means of navigating through the world, but also losing something that you're to say he's above average at it is an understatement. Like that's just like, Oh my God. Like, like just like Michael Jordan getting his finger cut off, you know, like was the, the guitar pedal like to help him be able to continue playing. Uh, the guitar pedal was just something that he really wanted. It had nothing at all to do with helping out his ability ability to hear things better because of his hearing loss he just had a great idea for a distortion pedal and he needed to have it made okay that's cool i guess his hearing he must have enough left of it to come up with that idea so i guess within the context of comparing him to this film he's not as bad off as that well i bet you also you could start to use your lack of hearing because in a way, at the beginning, I don't. I'm just guessing, but it's probably kind of like distortion in itself. So if you kind of learn to embrace it, then maybe it gives you like a different artistic direction that you can try out. Like you're trying to say that it's a creative constraint upon you, but it m- may not necessarily diminish your talent so much that you can't keep doing what you love. No, I'm almost saying the opposite. Like maybe it would give you like a new creative perspective because you know like distortion is a pretty common thing in a lot of guitar or in a lot of music and so if your hearing is already distorted maybe it gives you like a a new way to compose music jamie do you want to do you want to give a brief summary of what this movie is so we can put frame it well i i have one little anecdote to contribute if i can okay lay it on me um so this in no way relates to hearing, but it sort of does relate to acquired uh, disability or like a sudden like refactoring of one's physical capacity. So my uh, closest friend in university um, 
experienced a long-term uh, strain injury from like he was like captain of the soccer team at Carlton, and one of his signature, I guess, plays was like the his throw-in of the ball, uh, and uh, that sort of action hurt his uh, lower spine. Like he developed severe back pain at the age of 24 from repeated throw-ins. So it was a repetitive strain injury uh, effectively. And uh, it was getting to the point where he could no longer run on the field for prolonged periods of time. And so he was essentially uh, crippled. And when this happened, he, he went through like quite a crisis. Like, you know, he had faced like a bad breakup or whatever in university and, and other things that were quite heavy. But this soccer injury was huge. And um, I don't think I fully understood or empathized enough at the time, quite ironically. Um, but yeah, like he went through six months of like physio to change his gait and like uh, effectively try to fix the or correct the problem in his posture and uh over time he eventually got back onto the field but there was a period of time where he couldn't play where he was just basically uh lost and uh it was really hard like his his trajectory through this injury was quite similar to Riz Ahmed in the sound of metal and it doesn't sound you know as severe but i think whenever something like this like uh, effectively rattles the core of a person's impression of themselves and you know like what they have to offer the world and never mind just like the collective stigma toward disability itself i it may not even have to do with that altogether but it's just like that threatening of your core sense of self can just be traumatic and i think that's one thing that this movie the sound of metal does so well it's basically about a uh, an indie musician in a loud metal band with his girlfriend who travels the country in a retrofitted motorhome playing like he's a drummer and their music is very loud like you know the movie opens on their act essentially and he's absolutely slaying it he's like met miles teller at the end of uh whiplash like fully formed and in his elements and very happy and just like sweating profusely in the heat of uh, his music. And it's like, yeah, he just basically almost instantaneously, almost instantaneously loses his hearing and has to figure out what the fuck to do. Jamie, sorry, when I was listening to you, I couldn't really tell. Were you rushing or you're dragging with that? It wasn't quite my tempo. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Uh, like, you're not sure how to follow me? Whiplash. That was a whip, whiplash joke. Oh, not quite my tempo. <laughs> Fuck, how did I miss that? <laughs> how am I not going deaf by the crickets as a result of that? <laughs> I should have got that. I love that movie. <laughs> Anywho, onwards to the movie of the week. Tony, take it away. Well, first of all, to what you're saying about all of a sudden losing something, I think that We've talked about this a bit before, but an acquired disability has to be such a blunt reminder. It's not so much what you've already lost, but what you could lose. So it's just like almost like a reminder of how quickly everything can be stripped away and also like how 
mortal you are, I guess, right? And so this guy in this movie... Ruben. Ruben, yeah. His identity was 100% tied to his ability to drum. Yes. You could tell it right off the gate. Like, drumming was basically his his way to cope with the world. And yeah. without it, he probably felt like he was nothing. Yeah, I mean, well, it's his source of income. It's like the root of his connection with his girlfriend. It's like his passion overall, artistically. And uh, it's just like to the core of his being. And he is an addict, too. Exactly, yeah. You actually get the sense that the music is what's helping him stay sober. Exactly. I, I, Tony, I'm actually so glad you brought up this idea of the importance of like the thing that you lose in regards to the impact it's going to have on your life just because speaking from personal experience i've broken my left arm four times three of the four times my arm as far as i can tell because i'm not like a croupier or like uh uh just to make sure i'm not being like a pretentious jack off do you guys know what a croupier is? No. Not a clue. And I didn't want to be a pretentious jack off and ask. <laughs> it's a fancy word for a car dealer at like a casino. There's a there's a Clive Owen movie called Croupiers in it. Anyways. <laughs> it sounds like a type of croissant. Everything every new word Jamie hears is dessert. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. So yeah, so it, it, yeah, so it, it like it's not that like like uh um my my my, my skills were so refined that I would have uh, notice that I would have lost it but uh, on the I guess it would be the third arm break it was quite severe I had to have two surgeries uh, and like I still to this day even though it's close to 20 years after the fact have serious rotation issues with my arm and basically like I can't I can play guitar at like the level of like a pretty good like 16 year old uh, when before, like, I mean, if with enough practice, who knows, I probably could have been pretty good. And so the fact that like, I wasn't a professional guitarist or I wasn't touring because of it or whatever, whatever, I was just kind of like, yo, this sucks. Like I love playing guitar and it sucks. I can't fucking move my arm, but Hey, I can still type. I can still walk around. I can still carry things. No one would ever know that. And so it doesn't bother me that much. And like, right. I think it's an interesting point that you bring up that like, if this thing that is like quite legitimately crippling you, which is obviously uh, a term that has like levels of severity, like you could say someone's crippled if they're missing two fingers in the same way you could say someone's crippled if they're missing their entire forearm. Like, you yeah. know, they're you, like oh, to almost say that they're less crippled or more crippled is almost like offensive that's our job yeah <laughs> it's it's i guess it's relative to what you're trying to accomplish exactly exactly like, exactly. like that's i was i was reading about uh whether deaf people are considered uh disabled under the ada like the americans with disabilities act <clears throat> and apparently it's it's just like you're assessed based on your ability to complete basic life tasks and whether like are you functional and I suppose, like, th there are subjective criteria under that decision. But, uh, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing that uh, Ruben says, actually, upon realizing that he has lost his hearing, like before he goes to see any doctor or kind of breaks the news to his girlfriend, <clears throat> is that he's dead. Like he, he, he actually like totally flips out. Like he goes into a white hot rage uh, in his uh, van motorhome and just starts smashing things. When he starts to realize that he's, he is losing his hearing, like the movie kind of creates a whole lot of anxiety around this. Like he is worried and you are as deeply worried as he is. Uh, and they kind of establish the, um, the importance that he be able to hear to survive like very quickly in the film. Like I would say within the first 15 minutes. And uh, when he essentially has this panic attack in the van, you're kind of right there with him. Oh my God, 100%. Well, the sound is also really intriguing in this movie because of the way it plays back and forth on like what what the environment sounds like versus how he can hear it. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, how deafness is kind of like the perfect uh, disability to portray in cinema because the medium itself is is like perfectly adapted to the limitations of the disability. Right. And so it's a really cool way to almost like to create uh, empathy and concern very, very quickly. Actually, this point seems like the perfect segue into pointing out the fact that the sound of metal, ironically enough, won the Oscar for best sound. Oh, there you go. That's awesome. And it also won uh, for best film editing. And uh, it was actually nominated for a lot of stuff. Like, I, I really enjoyed the movie a lot. Yeah. But after I read this, I was just like, damn, apparently people enjoyed it as much. I might even go as far to say even more than me. So it won for best sound, won for best film editing, lost for best picture uh it was also nominated for best original screenplay best actor and best supporting actor so i mean uh, to be nominated for that many and to win two at least at the very least critically people loved it uh on uh rotten tomatoes 97 percent. so yeah well the movie was also it was like two hours long and it never felt long and one thing that was interesting was because even though I knew before we started watching it that it was two hours long, and then I made this comment while we were watching it that the transition from hearing to not being able to hear was pretty quick and pretty early in the movie. Laser quick. And I was surprised because I thought they'd like drag it out or build up to it a bit more. But I kind of, in retrospect, think that the way they did it was better because it makes you feel almost, uh, it gives you the same callback here, whiplash that you he probably had when he goes from just performing one night to essentially being deaf the next day. I agree 100%. Sorry, Jamie, I've been doing way too much talking. You take this one away. No, no, no. I completely agree with you there, Tony. That was like one of the best decisions in the movie, I think. Um, and I think also the focus of the film was not the process of going deaf but it was more um coming to terms with it coming to terms with it and, and allowing the movie enough time to breathe uh and to place attention upon the process of his recovery to convince us that yes you know like he will move on 
and life is not over. And actually, that was one thing that I wanted to talk about. Like one of my favorite parts of this this film is the counselor, I suppose, or the yeah counselor, the recovery, the the deaf the deaf counselor, essentially that Ruben uh, meets Ginger Ponytail. Yeah, yeah, Ginger Ponytail. He was incredible. Right. Yeah. So Ruben has a history of addiction. So when he realizes he's going deaf, he starts to chain smoke. And then that prompts him to call his sponsor, who then kind of puts him, uh, directs him toward this school, I guess, for uh, deaf people. So Ruben and his girlfriend drive out to this camp, which is like in the remote elderness somewhere, sort of right in the middle of a bunch of beautiful greenery and trees. And uh, Ruben sits down. And basically talks to this counselor, uh, tells him what's going on and gives him his history. And uh, basically, he's just super desperate. And you can see it in in Riz Ahmed's eyes for the first quarter of this film. Just the sheer anxiety on his face over what's going on and and his cluelessness. He's basically like a a fish completely out of water and uh, thrown right into the deep end of this disability and this counselor is just amazing. Like Tony, could you imagine if like we had a disability counselor like the guy in this movie? Like when we were kids, someone we could just go to and they could be like, "You know what? It's perfectly okay. We know you can't do X, Y, and Z, but I've lived a full life as a deaf person or a disabled person and I've solved these problems." Yeah. And uh, here's what you have to do. And it's just like it, it immediately calms you down. Like you go from the shock of the first few scenes of the film to like you you can suddenly kind of relax like you realize that you know Ruben has some resources and there are people out there who care and will try to help him understand what life means now that he can't hear anymore and it's it's quite like it's quite beautiful really I have been to counselors and for various things and at various points in my life I feel like you're right like I'm always kind of trying to figure out or comparing my situation to theirs to see if they can actually empathize. And even though like I've had some good counselors, it it always feels kind of like what you don't understand. You, you can't fully get it. So yeah, I mean, being able to, even if they were disabled in any way, I think it would make them a bit better at, or at least make me think that they were better empathizing with me fuck i remember um at carlton uh the paul mitten center for students with disabilities yeah i was pretty terrified of carlton carlton in my first year i i really wasn't convinced that i would be able to go to school on my own you didn't meet her before uh no well i uh i did go a few months before first semester yeah. Like while I was when I was still in high school, I, I came to Ottawa for a couple of weeks and I got a tour of campus. But I was with my friend Nick at the time with him in residence, the same guy who injured his back. I stayed with him in his first year of res. He was a year ahead of me at the time. And so I, I did get introduced to campus and accustomed to the idea. But I always felt like I was, you know, much more disabled than my sister. And that given the amount of help that I needed in high school to uh, get around to my class and participate in physical, like phys ed and like even sometimes my homework load, I uh, had a reduced course load in my last year of high school because 
I'm just, I'm slow, you know, for certain kinds of work. Um, so I was like mortified of university and just like Ottawa itself was this whole new world. Uh, and I, I went to Carleton for the computer science program, but also because I had close friends from Thunder Bay who were there. And I thought, you know, maybe they could help me with the transition to residence. And my sister had also gone away to school. So it was sort of expected that I would too. And because she had CP and I have CP, you know, like the expectations across the board for my parents were equivalent, even though, you know, in my mind and like even to my sister's mind, the two of us uh, have uh, non-comparable situations in some ways. Uh, so I didn't think it was realistic. And I remember going to Carleton and, and meeting uh, Scott uh, and then meeting Somi Tam, who was a PMC coordinator who herself was in a wheelchair. And I'm not sure before that time, as an 18-year-old kid, I had ever met a disabled professional. You know, which is kind of fucking staggering if you really think about it. Uh, and Somi was like so understanding and accommodating and like willing to talk about different concerns that I had academically and with getting to class. Uh, and, and similarly, uh, Scott helped me get acclimatized to uh, residence and showed me the lay of the land. And uh, over the years, he was uh, a repeated positive influence for me. And yeah, like it's all about the people that you bring into your sphere when you're trying to recover from these situations or when you're when you're faced with obstacles that you don't think you can overcome given your disability. Yeah. Yeah. I had the the very same reaction because well you and I both grew up in small towns. Mm -hmm. And so I I'll speak for myself, I'm sure it's the same for you. But the number of people I knew who were disabled uh, I knew a number, I guess, but none of them felt like I could relate to them. Yeah. Like we were all so far. I was like the only one that could actually go to class, for example, and not stay in the special class with everyone else. Yeah, I, it was similar for me. I mean, there were a couple other of my peers that went to class, obviously, but there's always those sort of comparisons that you're drawing as a kid because you're you're scared of disability and you're scared of being disabled like being labeled uh too incapable of certain things yeah which which i think is fine because it forces you to be as independent as possible and as like autonomous as possible which yeah. is good because if you don't do that you can you know that learned helplessness thing you lose some potential that you have yeah but then when i went to carlton during my like orientation or whatever, I also met Somi and I had the very same reaction. I was like, oh, immediately, even, even if we're not remotely the same person, she will understand me in a way that not many other people can. Yeah. So I feel she's like an instant mentor for me. Yeah. Like when I was in Catholic school, I literally had some teachers who challenged uh, my individual education plan. Yeah. Pose the question like, you know, does Jamie really need extra time for this? Yeah. And I used to think like, fuck you. Yes, I do. Yeah. Now I want triple time. Yeah. And um, I was scared of similar treatment at Carleton. Like I fucked up many times in university. You know, like I've, I failed uh, at least one class and 
I dropped out of my master's prematurely. But <laughs> in any case, there were a number of times where I had academic crises. And I, I Somi was always sort of the first person I would speak to when stuff like this happened. And she always like put, put my concerns at ease. Well, she also always had a solution. Yes. So, like you never go there and be like, and she'd be like, huh, that sucks. Yeah. She'd be like, okay, well, let me print off these forms or get you a textbook or like whatever needs to happen. Yep. She was she, fucking yeah, she, awesome. She was, was like great. our Judy human. Yeah. So um, the relationship is basically at least relatable to when Ruben goes into this place. And even though at first he doesn't really see this person as someone who can mentor him, uh-huh. very quickly you realize that he's the perfect mentor. I've I've thought about that from so many angles, even just like physically, if I had physio from a young age, how much more functional would I be now? I feel like that's a like destructive thinking because I can hear my dad's voice in my head as you pose that question. Oh. And maybe I should have got a little bit more physio there, Mr. Joe. You could stretch your hamstrings <laughs> a few more degrees to the left. <laughs> I don't know. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's probably true. But to your point, it also makes me wonder, not that I don't think I'm in a good place now, but how much of a different place would I be if I did have a disabled mentor growing up someone someone who could at least prove to you what is possible yeah or if there was enough of a community of disabled people in most like sub communities such that you could actually establish some kind of culture between yeah. disabled people because i almost feel like before we watched crip camp uh like i've never really felt a sense of disabled culture but you never went to like a camp did you no, I didn't. Yeah. I actually have an interesting example that is kind of tangentially related to this issue you guys are talking about, but I'm going to need about 52 seconds to go urinate. So I'm going to come back and then drop some knowledge. So give me two seconds. All right. Sounds good, Michael. <laughs> 52 seconds. <laughs> yeah, should we start a timer? Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine if that fucker empties his bladder in 52 seconds? I'm so jealous. What is the fastest you think you've ever peed? Three minutes and 32 seconds. For real? Yes. And it would have probably have to be mostly in my own pants. Oh, okay. Well, if we're talking that, <laughs> I could do it in less than 52 seconds. <laughs> Here, give me, give me like four seconds right now. I'm implying that I went so fast that I couldn't focus on. Oh, you had like maximum drippage. Yes, that's what I'm saying, Tony. Okay, so, but realistically, you actually think you've done it in three minutes and 32 seconds, including transfer time? Yeah, and time I take to, like, you know, stare at the floor, yeah. Can I ask you a question? What? Do you transfer to the toilet to pee? Yes. You don't have, like, some precision parabolic aim or something? Of course not. I'm not one of those motherfuckers who needs to stand because I'm a man. No, I, I'm not saying that, but like, you don't have a way that you can sit in your chair and do it. No, 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 like some sort of like mathematical calculus for piss? Yeah, yeah, you just like the angle of incidence from dick to balls. <laughs> I take the fucking uh, derivative of my piss curve <laughs> and optimize it to get to the toilet. 
Y equals MX plus P. Yeah, man. The economics of piss, piss control. So, yeah, no, I don't do that, Tony. I'm not that smart. And plus, when I have to pee, I can't focus. I got to pee. I'm back, baby. Michael, that was longer than 52 seconds, you fuck. No, it wasn't. Oh, it wasn't? No, it wasn't. I thought it felt pretty fast. <laughs> it felt pretty fast. Um. Okay, so. Okay, wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 Michael. I just, yeah, 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 I just yeah, want to yeah. make sure you fully appreciate the level of privilege you just went through. Oh, we've been over this a number of times, and it makes me feel like fucking Superman going into the phone <laughs> booth and being able to uh, get in and out of clothes that quickly. Like, that's how I feel being able to whip it out, expel uh, waste, uh, whip it back in, and then uh, go on with my daily life. Man. Well, I mean, Michael's paid his dues, though. Like, he's helped me up, like, multiple staircases where it's taken, like, literally, uh, like, half an hour for me just to get to the apartment building where a party is occurring downtown. And he's the one, like, making sure that I'm not tripping over myself or falling. Uh, and he's, I think he's also helped, helped me a few times during some, like, bathroom stall issues. So I, yes. we, we shouldn't punish Michael. Oh, that's not a punishment. I'm just trying to live vicariously. My next question was going to be, how quickly can you get up in the morning? Yeah, you don't even want to know. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, we're go- we're going back to this idea of limitations uh, in regards to how can I um, trust someone who is trying to relate to uh, my disability if they don't share the same uh, disability? How can I trust them to impart some knowledge uh, uh, that I'm supposed to take at at face value and not question at all? And so the best example that I can give in 2014, I made uh, this video called The Limits of Compassion. And it was about uh, this movement in Ottawa to open a supervised injection site, which in 2014 was a crime. And it was officially, it was was federally illegal to have a supervised injection site in Canada. The only place where it existed was at Insight in Vancouver. And I forget like the legal uh, um, explanation or um, exemptions that they had, blah, 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 blah. And so at the time that I made it, like it was literally a a bunch of people who were trying to change laws. And so um, the reason why I think that, again, from 2014 till I think, I, I don't know the exact year. I probably should. But I mean, we've had uh, legal injection sites in Ottawa for minimum, what, three, four years, like at least, right? The fact that like it's gone from if you do this, you're going to fucking prison because you're injecting, you know, a schedule one drug in public uh, flagrantly to the cops are not allowed to come within 50 feet of this thing. The reason why that happened is because the two people who were pushing this movement forward were uh, what they call peers. So basically people who were either former or current 
drug addicts, drug users, blah, whatever word you want to use. Uh, so people who have experienced what these people who need help are experiencing and also academics who they, I, I, I don't know if they had a, a drug use in their past, whatever, whatever, but that they had the uh, academic backing to say, hey, all of these homeless people that you spit on, here's all the proof and here's all the statistical uh, clinical studies that we've done to show that, yeah, they might look like bums and they might have track marks and they might have uh, HIV, they might have hepatitis C, uh, they might be begging on the street, but here's the reason why we need to help them. And I think that's where that incredulity comes from because there's there's not a lot of movements that can say not only do we have the people who have that life experience we've also experienced we also have the people who don't have that life experience and they completely agree with them that's a good point because you might be able to realize how you can leverage your position to help the people around you and you don't necessarily have to be in the same position Exactly. Because it's like, like on the most selfish level, what motivation does this upper middle class academic have to help out some smelly homeless drug addict? Why would they devote all their time to helping them if there wasn't something real there? If this person has gone to school for 10 Probably even longer than that, yeah. you know, if they're a doctor or whatever, and they're going back for their second uh, a doctorate. Like, it's just like, I think this person, they might have maybe a good reason to overcome the fact that they have nothing in common with this individual. If they want to help them, maybe you should help them, too. Well, there, there's there's that argument, like, if you're doing something nice just to feel better does that make you a good person because the action that you're doing something nice is the same but the intention is maybe selfish but at the end of the day you're still doing a good thing right i don't know it's a tough one i don't really know i still don't really know where i stand on it but i do agree with what you're saying like if you even if you're doing it just to be able to brag to to people at a party about what you do for a living, you're still doing it. So you're still able to help these people from your position of privilege or power or whatever and give them a leg up in a a position where maybe otherwise they wouldn't have that opportunity. And so I guess you're right. It doesn't always have to be someone who, like, because you'll never find someone who perfectly parallels your experiences anyways it's it's kind of up to you like if you trust them to be being genuinely empathetic towards your situation when they're trying to help you yeah we've we've talked about empathy in terms of um, inspiration before yeah like when it's okay to feel inspired by a a disabled person and i think there's obviously empathy involved in um, when you're receiving help from someone whether they're disabled or not like I was thinking, you know, in addition to people like Somi, we've also had 
a number of physiotherapists and occupational therapists and just like a litany of people who've helped us throughout our lives that have, you know, devoted their professional careers to understanding solutions to various issues. And granted, you know, uh, physios and occupational therapists can be dummies. Uh, they can prescribe some really awful aids sometimes. They can kind of make your life miserable if they tell you you need to use a specific kind of shower chair, for example, and <laughs> you don't want to use it. Or, you know, they give you a, a walker that is uh, counterintuitive to your physical abilities. And so it just makes your life miserable or the, the bullshit with the power chair. Sometimes you get a chair that maybe doesn't suit you, but it was medically prescribed to you. So it should be fine. It should meet your needs perfectly. So yeah, like that can obviously happen if you get like, you know, a bad uh, physio or whatnot. But I think like what Michael was getting at is the importance of initiatives to dismantle the stigma of particular kinds of disabilities or afflictions. And uh, like a safe injection site goes a long way toward doing that for drug addicts. And, you know, like deaf, like schools for deaf people go a long way toward helping newly deaf people come to terms with their situation and develop life skills uh, and, you know, gain some additional or new culture in their lives that can allow them to move on or move forward. That brings up a really good point that came up in this movie. So we're all kind of talking about the importance of a sense of community when you're dealing with some struggle, right? Yep. Uh, that sense of community empowers you to feel, A, that you can overcome it, B, that you're not alone, that you have mentors, and then there are examples of how you can do it. But then in this movie, one thing that really caught me, and I still don't really know how I feel about it, but I kind of want to process it, Right now, when he, when Ruben, when he finds out he's going deaf, he immediately is like, what can I do to fix this? Yeah. He goes to a doctor and the doctor's like, very frankly, you're losing your vision. There's not much you can do. The best thing you can do is stop exposing yourself to loud noise, which is like the last thing he's willing to do. Yeah. It's like when the dentist told me to stop eating spicy food or I'd keep getting sores in my mouth. I was like, I'm just going to keep getting these sores. When this optometrist, is it an optometrist? No, that's an eye doctor. Audiologist? Oh, yeah, I think it is audiologist. Yeah, because we were saying audiology like would be a cool DJ name. Oh, yeah, Dr. Audiology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this audiologist is like, one thing you can do is get this $70,000 operation of cochlear implants, which will ostensibly make you be able to hear again. Yep. He instantly, obviously, is like, yeah, okay, that's what I'm doing. Yep. I will save up or sell my life to get these things. That is all I need to get through. And so the movie is him, you know, first coming to terms with it kind of settling down, but then eventually he does get the implants. He gets the surgery. He goes back to the group, uh, like his support group, the counselor, and says, hey, like, I'm going to need to crash here for a bit. You can, can you help me out while I recover? 
he actually asked for money too. But essentially, as soon as the counselor finds out that he got the surgery to fix himself, quote unquote, he got kicked out of the group. I mean, yeah, that's probably the most touchy part of the film for me. And I, I'm not really sure how to, how to approach the subject because like, I'm not a deaf person. So I, I've never experienced this um, delineation between um, deaf people who prefer not to use technology or assistive aids in order to hear and those who prefer to remain completely deaf. Let's imagine it's me, right? And I have a bunch of friends who are disabled. Yeah. And then I go to my friends and I say, guys, guess what? I just got approved for this new SMA medication uh-huh. that's going to make me stronger. Let's say even for argument's sake, I'll be able to kind of walk again. Yep. Or are you guys going to be like, sorry, bro, get out. You're not, you can't be here anymore. Well, I mean, your overall quality of life and perhaps even like your longevity of life is improved by this medication. Right. So obviously, obviously, like that's a big resounding yes. Like, please, that's amazing. Tony, go do that. Right. What if you are a homeless person and you're like, guys, guess what? Someone just gave me a tent. Are you like, no, are you going to be a homeless person or not? Well, no, that's the thing. Like, I understand what you're saying. And I sort of have the same uh, conflicting feelings. I would think that if there was some technology, well, there is technology that improves my life readily every moment of the day. Um, But if there was something better that came along that like some exoskeleton that came along and let me walk without a walker or even just transfer more easily or in under three minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love it and I would adopt it very, very quickly. But I think it's a little different when you're deaf because, first of all, being deaf doesn't uh, shorten your lifespan. Uh, it doesn't impact your physical health all that much. Arguably, CP doesn't either, though, right? I mean, I think, it's, I think it can. Certainly your cardiovascular health <clears throat> and your uh, overall uh, exercise or your potential for exercise. Okay. But, uh, deafness is not fatal. And so technology will only, um, ingratiate you to the hearing world. Um, it will probably make your life easier, of course, as well. I think there's this component of a culture again, like I was talking about before, how it's difficult without community to have a sense of culture in the disabled world. Uh, and in but but there is a deaf community, and um, they have developed a number of strategies to exist in the hearing world and to solve their problems and to coexist amongst each other. And they do not want to lose those solutions to technology, which somewhat makes sense to me on some level. I mean, I get the argument, right? The whole point of that group is for them to be like, we can find a way to exist fully with this disability yeah. to a point where maybe it isn't even a disability anymore. It's just a different perception of the world. See, see, that's the thing for me is that like, uh, I think you can become obsessed with the pursuit of normal. Like even if normal is per- perpetually out of your reach. And I think like normal is an insidious idea because it, it presumes that there's a base human experience and that we should all ascribe to reach it. Okay, but what about like 
you're in a group of friends and none of you have a job. And then one guy's like, hey, I got a job. <laughs> and you're like, hey, get out. You're no longer part of this group of... Get out of here, you capitalist pig. Yeah. But, but I mean, like, so yeah, like I completely understand what you're saying. Uh, but like within the context of the movie, Ruben's counselor understands that his preoccupation with getting this hearing aid yeah. is is delaying... Uh, the process of him coping with his grief over this situation. Like he's lost something fundamental and it's not coming back and no magical MacGuffin of a hearing aid is going to fucking restore his full sense of self. And so like he needs to cope and he needs to learn to cope and he needs to coexist with the silence that comes with being deaf. And he's he's still got the addict mentality during his time. Yeah. Because he's like selling all of his stuff to make to make ends meet, like he's living beyond his means. Yeah, basically trying to glean other people's welfare, and yeah, it, it's he's still acting like an addict here. Be because he replaced, yeah, he replaced drugs with music. Yeah, uh, and so he really needs to get back to making music, or else he feels like he is dead. Well, he also finds out that because his girlfriend had to leave. Yeah, you know, wasn't able to stay on this uh, in this commune. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, camp for deaf survivors. <laughs> Here's one thing that I think a lot of people don't or aren't necessarily aware of. And like, I'm not an anthropologist. Uh, based on my limited research, it seems like there is some degree of uh, dispute within the scientific community. But like as late as 2014, in some pretty reputable uh, publications and based on things like uh, radiocarbon dating, basically there's a lot of proof showing that a relatively lengthy time period between 2,600 and 5,400 years, Neanderthals and modern humans, so some iteration of what we understand it to be Homo sapiens, they lived on the planet at the same time. And so the, like the, the modern human looked down upon the Neanderthal because even with their relatively you know limited brain considering this happened uh 40,000 years ago like they could understand that it was a lesser version of them and so as human society progressed that we built up you know uh, these human civilization people like like seeing people who are less powerful less strong i could beat you in a fight i'm gonna smash you over the head because i can like it's an old thing and unfortunately because homo sapiens came out on top for obvious reasons because they were smarter and they would build weapons and they would build houses that uh nathanals couldn't get into that that same idea of uh superior is smart inferior is bad inferior deserves to die and so like there's like a like a lengthy anthropological lineage that that comes from yeah and so i guess it's like 
unfortunately, it's going to take some huge leap forward in our understanding of what it means to be uh, able or before before the uh, um, actual recording started of this podcast, we're talking about Ray Kurzweil. And his whole thing, Fred, for people who are just catching on, is Ray Kurzweil is is what people refer to as a transhumanist. And it's his belief that we've reached the point of human civilization, uh, evolution, and that the only way, uh, at least within the next gazillion years, uh, I'm using that as a joke, obviously, I'm not that stupid, <laughs> um, but the, 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 the next phase of human uh, evolution is going to be through our own doing and that uh, it's going to be cybernetic implants, uh, n- nanobots going through our systems that can eliminate um, uh, cancerous cells, uh, things that will stop inflammation, which is something that is an outdated way of stopping you from getting uh, infections. You know, if you get stabbed in the wild, and you don't have antibiotics, you're gonna die. Of course, you need you need inflammation to solve that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be that surprising that we're having such a difficult time getting an ethical target on normal. Yeah. Because for me, it's like I don't think I'm normal. I think normal would be if I could run faster than the speed of light, and if I could fly, and if yeah. I could transport. If anything, normal to me is like an insult, you know? And it's just like, like, is that the most normal? Is that the most privileged thing you could possibly say? Uh, to some people, yes. But to someone in a thousand years who has metal wings and who's going to fly by and chop my head off <laughs> with their titanium alloy wings are going to be like fucking normal, bitch. You know? So it's just like n- normal of like, uh, what is what is able-bodied, what is normal, what is disabled, what is... You know, yeah, we're we're living in like a like a post primal time where we're yeah. trying like we're trying to almost it's like a race between our animal brain and our logical rational brain, and our animal brain is still like don't look at the disabled people they're they're like gonna give you something that will kill you, and then your rational brain is like maybe they can actually contribute in meaningful ways to my life or to society or whatever. You're right. It's, it's going to be a forever conversation. I mean, it really will. And I mean, like in both a positive way and a negative way, because I mean, like if you took the most educated individual from archaic Greece who read everything by Socrates, uh, uh, Pythagoras, uh, blah, 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 whoever, whoever, whatever. And then you tried to tell them about how we can grow a human liver in a lab. And there's literally human beings walking around right now with lab grown livers. And this isn't science fiction or how we can put a chip inside of a bug and you can control it. And you could fly it around like a fucking RC car. Yeah. Like they'd be like, you're sick. Like you're sick. You're sick, witches. And you need to be executed <laughs> ASAP because we, you're like, you're like, you, you, there, there's no possible ethical or justification, moral justification for that. It's disgusting. Anyways, this is a bit of a tangent. Well, I know. I'm glad that you were able to get to compare us, all three of us, to Socrates 
and Pythagoras. Like I do, I do see the similarity for sure. <laughs> no, I want to be that. Who's that fucking guy that lived in the barrel? What? Like you got thrown down Niagara Falls? No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so there, there is this. There was, there was, there was a super famous uh, Greek philosopher. And he was known for being this like insane drunkard, except he was revered by the cultural elite at the time because, like, despite the fact that he was literally a bum, <laughs> like, he was a bum living in a giant wine barrel on the street, but he was like a fucking genius. And like, kings, I think, I think there's actually, again, this, this could be an ap- apocryphal anecdote about Alexander the Great coming to visit him for advice. Imagine it was just like before we had enough like public discourse to weed out the people with mental health diseases. So like you're just someone standing on a corner, like shouting about how the sky is falling and people are like, oh, this guy knows what's up. Okay, so this guy, he's been validated by multiple sources. Like, this isn't just, like, one Greek guy being like, yeah, us Greeks, we fuck with whatever. So Diogenes <laughs> of Sinope, the self-proclaimed citizen of the world, who at different <laughs> points al- allegedly lived in a wine barrel, urinated on guests uh, at a banquet, made regular practice of insulting famous figures and lecturing shoppers in a marketplace. And that's, that's who you're trying to be? That's who I aspire to be. <laughs> But imagine like 40, 400 years, we look back and we think that like sovereign citizens are the people of the past who had all these brilliant ideas and stuff. Like it, it really, you're right. The fact that this is an ongoing conversation is what drives the ethical target into a better and better place. At the same time, I think we need to have these conversations to weed out bad ideas, right? Like that guy could have been just insane and the kings were going to him to be like, is this guy for real? Anthony, you're so good at distilling Michael's tangents into something increasingly relevant. (laughs) No, because I do, I see what he's saying. Because he's right that, you know, in order for us to talk about these things, like if you're deaf, should you be able, should it be ethically appropriate or should you strive to want an implant that helps you hear? Is that okay? And the, the, the true honest answer, in my opinion, is I don't know. But I think we have to be able to honestly look at both sides in order to try to figure it out. But I think it gets to the point that Maggie Whittem was trying to make, or had alluded to a few episodes ago, uh, where like with her own experience, like after her stroke, she was like, uh, wishing for like modern medicine to basically solve her problems catch up, yeah, to catch up. Yeah. And it didn't, or it couldn't. And just that the realization that it, it might not, uh, is very important when you're trying to cope with the grief of loss in terms of your, your abilities and you know, who you now are with your disability yeah. And so, like, yeah, these larger questions are obviously important, but within, within the context of the movie, it's before you do anything else, you have to be able to accept this new reality. Well, you have to be able to accept your reality, 
But shouldn't you also be able to accept the parts of it that you can change? Yes, but not if it leads you on a path of of self-destruction. Like if you get tunnel vision uh, in the pursuit of your new hearing aid and you give away all of your possessions and you jeopardize your relationship with your lover uh, and you start asking your deaf counselor for thousands of dollars, you know, like maybe you need to stop and think and calm down and confront your your anger and, yeah. you know, understand or at least accept the very idea that there may not be a technological or medical solution to your problem. And I think that is why you have that counselor in your life. I aspire to be able to have friends who can honestly look at me and be like, don't do that. Yeah. Like I have very supportive friends, yep. but sometimes I'm almost worried that because they're so supportive, they won't tell me when I'm like veering in the wrong direction. I'm just thinking of Jeff, like propping you up, like in the bed at the uh, laser eye clinic, making sure they don't fucking render you blind. At no point being like, maybe you shouldn't get laser eye surgery. <laughs> and obviously that's a joke because I, I think it was a good decision. Absolutely that, it was. Yeah, that's what I mean though. Like, it, I, I do struggle with the idea that like, you know, you have to just trust that your friends will like honestly look at you and be like, dude, like you're going too far in this or you're not doing enough of this or whatever. Renders one of those words that must just like fucking piss. It must piss off people whose first language language isn't English off so much. What made you think of the word render right now? I think I use it repeatedly. Did he, you? he uses it to uh, talk about your eye surgery. Oh, when Ruben got his implants, they rendered his hearing almost not useful. Okay, I'm glad we're back on track here. Okay, so now <laughs> I, can, I can finally contribute something that's actually related to uh, the movie. So, uh, yeah, my friend Aaron, he doesn't have cochlear implants, but he does have uh, like expensive as shit hearing aids. You know, they're like 500, 800, whatever dollars. Like they're heavy duty hearing Damn. aids. And so um, the way that it works is uh, they give the hearing aids and they're like, try them out for a little bit, see how it works. And then you go to basically like, it, it looks like a recording studio, like in the movies. And um, they try to tune them for you. The problem is that Audio audiologist? That's the word, right? Doctor audiology. Doctor audiology, yeah. That you know, they're not fucking Mozart. You know what I mean? Like they're right. they, they, they like they and, and especially thing is this like the hearing is a very subjective thing. Long story short, like their attempts to uh tweak the hearing aids in response to his dissatisfaction with how things are hearing was an absolute nightmare and they weren't even coming close. And that's kind of what that scene was showing Yeah, where it's like, it's like, we're going to turn them on and you're going to love it. And you're going to cry like those babies in the videos. It turns them on. It's like, <laughs> and she's like, the fuck motherfucker. Why aren't you crying? <laughs> Except I was like, I can't fucking hear you. Can you put on the doesn't sound shitty filter? And I mean, and so uh, I, I think I told you this guy's 
I told you this guy's <laughs> an, an anecdote uh, off off camera, or off recording, or off a track or whatever. Uh, but like, <laughs> he basically. I forget whether they hooked him up with the software or whether he had to go online and find the software himself. But like a friend of mine who has serious hearing, like his ears are ringing 24 seven to put in context. Like, like a man just like, <laughs> let's continue the podcast. Just like, yeah, just do that. The whole yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. But I'm sure it's 10,000 times worse, you know? Um, but yeah. So like in addition to, having to listen to his ears ringing all the time, uh, he had to tweak his own hearing aids that uh, the person who's got, I don't know how much audiologists get paid. I would assume it's not that poorly. It's got to be like a specialty in itself to be able to tune an electronic device to try to sound even remotely close to what our brain was used to. Because that's the other thing, right? Like, when you get a cochlear implant and you've never heard anything before, then just being able to hear a buzz in your head probably sounds cool. But if you go from being a musician to being deaf, and then you get this surgery that you uproot your life for, and then you find out that it's almost unbearable, you know, it's nothing close to what you were used to, I, I can imagine like the frustration. Like if I woke up after laser eye surgery and everything was green. Or everything looked like fucking uh, Sonic and Knuckles or something, you'd be like, fuck. Or yeah, your vision was just like a, like a, a 120p YouTube video. Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, I was expecting tails, motherfucker. <laughs> Maybe it was just a, a product of... He didn't. He probably didn't get the best cochlear implants available because he wasn't able to afford the best ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. In that sense, though, that would definitely make you wonder if maybe it's better to just be deaf. And the movie does kind of allude to that, right? Yes, I'm. I'm kind of. I'm kind of uh, revisiting something that I feel like we've already covered pretty well. And my apologies if uh, someone specifically mentioned this and I just completely ignored it. But we were talking about this whole thing about how is it fair that because his desire to hear again seems to correlate to the behavior of someone who is a drug addict, it doesn't mean that it's being caused by the same things that cause uh, drug addiction. I remember, I think all three of us reacted to this in the same way, where we're like, man, this fucking sucks that he's kicking him out of the house because he can hear again. That's pretty fucking harsh. But there's that beautiful moment where uh, when Ruben walks out, he finally cracks. And there's that exhale, and like it looks like he's about to cry. And you're like, he's got a soul. You're talking about you're talking about the counselor who evicts him essentially, right? Yeah, and he has that one moment where he's just like, "I had to put on a brave face, but like, it got me in the in the feels." I don't want to say it saved the scene, and I was completely on board with him, but like, okay, I get I get the fact that he's hashtag Nat Ambrulia torn. 
you know? So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I I mean, I don't know. His Ruben's hearing aid is less a commentary on the state of, you know, deaf hearing aids and whether or not they are an adequate substitution for the ability to hear and more just like about him accepting the hearing aid is a completely inoptimal solution and that he will just have to confront, you know, that he's deaf now. But that's only because the hearing aid is inoptimal, right? Yeah. Like if the hearing aid was perfect and you just went back to your 2020 hearing, I don't know how hearing is measured. <laughs> um, you probably, he probably wouldn't have had that crisis of whether or not to keep the cochlear implants on. Right. I uh, yeah, but more broadly, like the movies about like how to heal. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't heal by like you know patching the wound with a band aid. I appreciate the larger point that the film was trying to make, and I think it argued it really well. Me too. Even though I kind of saw it coming, and I was hoping it wouldn't be cheesy, it wasn't. I felt like it really. I was in the moment with him when he had that realization. And he's right. Uh, this is super cheesy, but I don't know. Maybe I've told you about it before. But as a kid, I had a Bible that I had to carry around all the time. You had to? Do you remember what version of the Bible it was? Was it the King James Bible? It was the one that was written in like Arial font and it was easy to read. It wasn't like thou shalt not. It was like you shouldn't do it. Okay, it wasn't King James then. No, it wasn't King James. It was like... It might it might have been like the Anglican one or something because they're more chill and they're less like booga booga you're gonna burn in hell gay people suck so it was like a gift for like confirmation or something I don't even really remember what confirmation is confirmation signifies a man's journey into manhood he's basically him agreeing with all the shit that his parents told him when he was a kid yeah it was like some milestone in the church. I don't really fully understand how I got it, but it's on my resume. And Is it on your LinkedIn? That's the big question. Right, yeah. It's on my LinkedIn, my Facebook, my Twitter. And on the cover is the serenity prayer. And I don't know, I don't know it like verbatim, but basically it's like you gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. You gotta know when to walk away, and you gotta know when to run. Sorry, was that just like a four-minute build-up to a Kenny Rogers joke? <laughs> no, I had no idea that was coming, to be honest. Hold on, Tony, did you have to keep, the, did you actually have to keep this thing on your chair? Like, your parents mandated that you carry around a fucking Bible everywhere? It was, like, highly encouraged. Was it like when you misplaced your phone? Like, if you didn't have it on you, you felt further away from God? I didn't have a phone. I had a Bible. Well, that's what I'm saying. But is it par- is it related to that experience? Like you needed, you had to have your Bible on your person, or else you you felt lost. Anytime I complained, my parents reminded me that I'm only alive because of God. I I increasingly agree more and more with Jeff. <laughs> my point, though, is this serenity prayer is something that I still think about and I still relate to a lot. And it has nothing to do with Kenny Rogers. Absolutely not. And you had to go through the whole fucking verse. Well, you have to know when to hold him. 
no one to fool them. No in editing, we're playing that back away. at 1.5 speed. <laughs> it's like, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, uh-huh. the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Can we go back for a second, Tony? Did you actually have to carry around this Bible everywhere you went? I, I've already, no, I didn't have to. But you did voluntarily, like even at school and shit? Yeah, it was probably like in my backpack. Really? Did you go to a Catholic school? No, but like I was very into it. I thought that if I lied or swore, God would spite me and make my disability degenerate faster. I feel like every new episode of this podcast, we discover some dimension of your of childhood that was <laughs> subtly abusive. If that's argument, I guess the argument is more generally that you think religion itself is abuse. No, I just think it's kind of crazy that you had to carry around like an, like a, a book that's emblematic of your spirituality wherever you went. Yeah, my parents were really unhappy when they found out I wasn't going to church when I moved to Ottawa. Like it was like a, an actual fight. Do you guys do you guys have anything else you want to get out about this movie? <laughs> yeah, we've been on a real tangent. <laughs> I, I I think I'm good there. There's a relationship element to the film that I don't really think is worth exploring. Overall, though, I think it might be one of the most beautiful movies we've watched. Cinematically, you mean? Cinematically, yeah. Do you want to end it with a a quick wheel breaker? Yep. Oh, man. How, how I have waited for this. Let's just get right into it. Let me start with this beautiful... Wheel breakers. So, I have one. Because we have an AB guest, you know, able-bodied... Uh, guests are always a little bit harder. Here's what I'm going to do. For Jamie, you get three options, but for Michael, you only get two options. Fair enough. Jamie, your option number one is you get to stay status quo where you're at. Option number two and three are where things get interesting. And Michael, you get to choose between option two and three. Okay. So option number two is every time you go to sleep, no matter where you are, you hear... Someone starts playing the loudest drum kit ever. Just smashing drums, doing like a full solo for the whole time you're trying to sleep. Do we get to choose what solo it is? Oh, no. he's He is going through... I'll tell you that it's nice for you because it's always different. So you're not going to get used to it. It's like Neil Peart from like Rush. So it's like anything and everything. Yeah. So he could just, but it's going to be loud and bordering on obnoxious and probably hard to sleep, right? Impossible to sleep. Probably impossible. I mean, you can try earplugs and noise canceling headphones and, but he's, he's going hard. So no, even the most expensive noise canceling, but earplug, whatever, whatever, it might help a little. But you're never going to have a full, great night's sleep ever again. So, like, we're living in a fantasy world where it's impossible from this day forward. I'll never get used to it. Well, you might get used to it in that 
your new normal is shitty sleeps and waking up tired, but you're okay. never going to get used to it at the point where you can sleep to the sound of a drummer. Okay. So does your partner also hear the drumming? No, just you. Okay. And uh, is the drummer being conducted by J. Jonah Jameson from Whiplash? I don't think it would really matter if it was good drumming or bad drumming. <laughs> but I like that guy's character. And if he was... Okay, go ahead. Whatever. Fine. <laughs> Option number three is you start off fully able-bodied, perfect. Everything you want is how you have it set up. Yeah, big dick. But every time you make a joke and it yeah. doesn't land, yeah. you lose 1% of your hearing. <laughs> oh, man. I would, I would be deaf before the following words left my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, fuck. You know what? You could just surround yourself with like people. Nah, with- nah. I'd take that one. I, like, I, it would take work, but I could do it. Wait, so is your strategy that you would... Never tell a joke. You would just never tell a joke. I Honestly, I never even thought of that angle. Because it's so instilled in me to try to have to make a joke. That I didn't even consider that you wouldn't even try to make... But even, remember, like, a joke doesn't have to be a good joke. It can be a pun. It can be just like a little crack. And pardon pardon me, like, I need to say this about Michael. Like, lots of times he says hilarious shit without realizing how funny it is. Yeah, but then it lands because it's funny. And I'm not saying that because it's not funny because he's unaware that it's funny. It's just funny because of his process of observation. Yeah. So he would probably make jokes that were funny without even intending, and then he would lose his hearing. Is your strategy that you don't think you would lose your hearing? I, I don't. I think you're gonna lose your hearing regardless. Yeah. Sorry. I. No, well, the, well, re, re, like remo- removing any and all agency in the wheel breaking or not breaking. I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I, like yeah. you, it should have to be that you intend to make a joke. Exactly. It's only if people don't laugh. And you think you're funny. The thing is, it's 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 this magical power. So you can't just say, "Oh, I was I wasn't kidding. That wasn't a joke. I was being serious." You it knows. Okay, okay, okay. So here, okay, okay. What if I, you know, went to a Zen temple like three times a week and conditioned myself to never tell? A fucking joke for the rest of my life would i fuck up a few times a thousand percent yeah i would probably you know i'd probably tell 30 jokes so you'd have 70 percent hearing exactly yeah is that is that fair yeah is, is that okay. the life you want to choose you want to be a zen monk like totally humorless like no never telling jokes i mean like do you care about your hearing more than humor Ninety-eight percent of people on the planet Earth think I'm humorless, anyway. So I, it's all good. Well, that's just because your best friend is deaf. <laughs> here's another. Here's another thing. Does it have to be a joke from my mouth? Can I still be a spicy meme lord? Oh, oh. that's a great question. I think we have to say any attempt at making someone laugh. Yeah, you could. Well, we... I think if you're intending to make someone laugh and they don't laugh. Then you lose a percent. That would actually be a great 
really sussed out when someone fake laughs at your jokes. Because, like, you you tell a joke, and then you're like, wait, is my hearing worse? It would be the thing that I would work harder at achieving than anything I have worked harder at in my entire life. So you were just not trying to make jokes. I, like, I love music so much. Yeah. Like, I was literally fucking cooking today and listening to, like, the latest Billie Eilish song and was, like, on the verge of tears. I can't even picture you crying. That's why it makes it so special, because no motherfuckers see it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, like, it, 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 would be, it would be painful, and I would lose several decibels. Yeah. That, if that's the risk you're willing to take, that's fine. I mean, I appreciate the compliment that you think I'm that funny. I just think a hundred jokes is not much. Like you'll accidentally let one slip through. You will. I don't care how Buddha you are. Like you could just be a Buddha and you feel a fart coming on, and then what? You can't like make it a funny fart. <laughs> what 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 is a serious fart? <laughs> you have to be shameful of your farts. <laughs> no, that's funny. If you <laughs> <laughs> if, you farted, <laughs> if you farted right now and said excuse me <laughs> like oh i'm so sorry when you reach a certain level in zen buddhism uh your master gives you this thing called a a, a koan and it's spelled k-o-a-n and it's basically this like unsolvable riddle and i feel like Mine would be like, what is a, a fart that does not uh, produce humor? And once I was able to solve that, I'd save my hearing. <laughs> See, that was fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're doomed. All right, Jamie, which one do you take? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I would take the situation where I uh, go deaf because my mom does have deaf and she copes. I think I could cope. How, do you think you just race through it or would you try to pace it i don't know i should stress that i don't actually think it's easy to be deaf i just think i could i could deal with it yeah you just value humor more yeah like i need i need to make jokes and sleep and sleep oh my god yeah if if i was q from fucking tng like it would just be like silver uh crazy nebula star wipe and then it would just be like the friar's roast. And then James just got to rattle off a hundred jokes until he's fucking deaf. <laughs> <laughs> and then Picard just like fucking dying it. It's like, Jamie, you have nailed it again. Earl Grey piping. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would definitely filter my jokes a lot more because you guys know I make a lot of cheap jokes. Yeah, you do. Like, and, and they are fun. And I think they make people laugh because they know how cheap I'm being with them. But then it would feel worse if you make a joke that you really think is hilarious and nobody laughs. And then you lose a percent of your hearing on top of that. All right. Do you guys have any? Okay. Now I'm trying to decide which one to use. I'll pick the lame one first. Okay. So you get to be entirely able-bodied. Okay. But all the food... Tastes like burnt porridge, and all drinks taste like burnt porridge. Hold on. I say burnt porridge? Yeah, this is a reference to his childhood, don't worry. Yeah, this is traumatic. 
I've only had burn porridge maybe like 11 times and I loved it every time. 11? Yeah. That's <laughs> very specific. 11 too many times. I'm a porridge fanatic. The fact that you voluntarily add porridge 11 times is traumatizing to me. Oh, I like it. Is that my, that's my real breaker? I either stay disabled or I get able-bodied burnt porridge meals? Yes. Yes. No, dude. No. You know exactly how traumatizing burnt porridge is for me. You're saying there's no way for me to ever taste something again besides burnt porridge. Yes, exactly. Even when you drink water, burnt porridge, slice of cake, burnt porridge. That's going to make it hard to even stay hydrated. Girlfriend saliva, burnt porridge. No. <laughs> no, no. No. Okay. I have, an, I have another one for you. Oh, we're doing two? All right. Yeah, yeah. This is real because it's a quick fire. You, you're, you're, you're entirely able-bodied, uh, but once a day, mm-hmm. every time you go, go out in public, yeah. the first person to make eye contact with you, you have to say to them, in your best impression of John Hurt, I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am not an animal. I am a human being. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah, too do- easy. That's fun. Yeah, that's fun. You'd enjoy doing that? I, I kind of want to just do it again. I'll do that for 27 cents tomorrow. Yeah. 27 cents only? And I get to choose who I do it to because I can choose who I make eye contact with. Yeah, well, okay. Way easier than burnt porridge. <laughs> I would have so much fun with it. And my impression would get so good. It would too, eh? When God closes the door, he opens the window. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't really make sense because it's a funnier impression for me to do now being disabled. And if I was able-bodied doing that impression, it might come off as, like, mocking. But I can just explain that I used to be disabled. Exactly. Also, Jamie didn't explicitly indicate that it had to be someone who was grossly deformed. No, he said that it was that, that line from that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you could go up to, like, uh, the most attractive person that you oh, see yeah. say that, and they just be like, ha, <laughs> Fucking funny. You're not a monster, man. Chill out, bro. No, what I'm saying is it might be more offensive me doing it as an able-bodied person yeah. than if I'm doing it now as a disabled person. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because it's oh, like, yeah, 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 I'm, yeah. you know, I'm punching up or punching down a bit from yeah, an yeah. able-bodied perspective. Yeah. But, no, I would still, that's a great, it's a great line, first of all. John Hurt isn't disabled, so yeah, I would hundred percent do that. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> John Hurt's dead. Oh yeah. I always mix him and William Hurt up. Oh, so he is ultimately the most disabled. Yes. Yeah. He's his consciousness is completely crippled. He's the uh, hurt that got the most hurt by the universe. Oh. And we should end it there. <laughs> All right, guys. I just wanna say Thank you, Michael, for coming on. That was super fun. Oh my god! Thank you for having me on. Man, your so your anecdotes and your like random trivia knowledge is always impressive. You always hey. have some way to relate any conversation to anything that you know or have learned or 
You're you're very, very fun to talk to. I, I also want to say like absolutely thank you so much for all the support so far. You've honestly been like so encouraging for this whole thing. Your support on this podcast has been unbelievable, not only with your like Instagram stuff and all that, but also, you know, just the words you've said to us over the course of these episodes. Like even at, at the beginning, you know, we were kind of struggling to figure out how we're going to do it or if we're going to continue. And there were a couple of times where your comments, your encouragement came just at the right time to really throw wind in our sails again. So I, I, I really, really appreciate everything that you've done so far. And I mean, obviously you're a great friend, but you've, you've done a lot for this podcast. And I want to flip it to you. Can people follow you somewhere if they want to get to know you or check out your work or anything like that? I guess just my website, the michaelcoming.tv. Uh, I don't know, going back to uh, all of your kind words, being on the planet for 41 years, uh, spending seven years post-secondary education, I'd like to think I have some degree of a bullshit detector that when I run across something that is something like really different and really special, like it's really like it's sincerely hard for me not to gravitate towards that and to just be like, I want to be a part of this uh, in whatever way is possible. The excitement uh, and the respect is uh, it's totally, totally mutual. So uh, yeah, thank you guys. Yeah. I, I super appreciate that. I know Jamie and I have had conversations about this, like your, your words have really meant a lot and we've felt nothing but love from you so I I really really appreciate it as do I that's 100% the intention so right back at you awesome man take care Chris holds out see you Michael take care I will talk to you later guys 